The reading today is from Matthew 4, 12 through 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Galilees, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread among, I'm sorry, for his, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We do look that your kingdom would come. May your kingdom come through these words into this room, into our hearts, that we would be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, committed to this incredible call that has been placed upon us. Our king has brought the kingdom, and he asks us to do the same. So, Lord, may it happen. May it happen in our midst. May it be a the fruit of this message. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's our seventh, seventh week in the Gospel of Matthew, and nearly everything that we have seen so far in this book has been preparatory. In chapter 1 and in chapter 2, Matthew has been preparing us to understand the significance of Jesus. Chapter 3, John the Baptist was preparing Israel, and by proxy us, to receive Jesus. And then Jesus' baptism and temptation were preparing him to begin his public ministry. But now all of the preparations have been made. The stage has been set, and finally in the Gospel of Matthew, the King of heaven and earth is ready to reveal himself. And he does. Jesus absolutely explodes onto the scene. And we see a marvelous picture of this in our passage today. We're going to see, though, 
that as he explodes onto the scene, as he's making disciples and crowds are flocking to him, at the same time, Jesus is subverting the expectations of that day that the Messiah would come and he would look like this. So as we look at our passage, recognize those things, we will see that the kingdom of God arrived in Galilee. And then we'll also see that the disciples of the king are called and have a calling. The disciples of Jesus are called and have a calling. Look at verses 12 and 13 again from Matthew chapter 4. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he, went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. It's funny because in chapter 14, many chapters from now, we're going to learn why John was arrested. Uh, Matthew doesn't provide those details right now. But suffice it to say that John had gone out and he had kicked the hornet's nest. He had confronted Herod. He infuriated Herod. And for it, he was imprisoned. And John would remain behind bars, well, for the rest of his life, for the remainder of this book, until he is executed by Herod. And this arrest signals the end of John's ministry, his public ministry. As Matthew has structured things, the end of John's ministry is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John ends, Jesus begins. John decreases, Jesus increases. And the things that John was proclaiming, they're now realized in Jesus. John's was the hope, Jesus is, is, is the realization. And Jesus knows that the light of the glories that the Messiah has come to initiate and proclaim, that these glories will dawn in Galilee. Let's talk a little bit about Galilee. Galilee was the region to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And compared to Judea in the south where the capital was, Jerusalem, Galilee was wealthy and bustling. It was busy. Judea in the south held significance mostly just for the Jews. Its terrain was rough. It was dry. It was relatively isolated, kind of far from all of the, the roads of that day, the highways, if you will. Galilee, on the other hand, it was a gentler landscape. And the land was fertile, it was green, it was located right on the highway at the crossroads of three continents. Galilee was a bustling region. So as such, by Jesus' day, Galilee had become incredibly diverse. Huge population, there was trade, abundant trade, there were new ideas that were propagated there that traveled through it, and so it's a perfect place to set the spark of a new idea and set the world on fire. So when Jesus withdraws to Galilee, it's very strategic. And he doesn't go back to his hometown, which was a relatively small town. No, he goes to Capernaum instead, which scholars, historians think, had as many as 10,000 people living there. Oh, parentheses. I'm going to have a couple of these today. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus did not immediately leave John. And that, like right after the temptation, after Jesus emerges from the wilderness, John wasn't arrested, and then Jesus left. No, there was some time where John the Baptist and 
Jesus, the Messiah, spent time ministering together. They baptized together. They preached together. Jesus was making disciples even at this point. But Matthew makes no mention of this. And I, want, I point this out because I want to remind you of how Matthew has arranged his gospel. He hasn't arranged it chronologically in a precise chronological manner. Rather, Matthew has arranged his book theologically and thematically. And I said in that first sermon of this series that one of the main governing structures of this book is that he has arranged it as a travel narrative where Jesus begins in Galilee, he moves down to Judea, and then finally everything culminates in Jerusalem. And so all of the preparations in Matthew's gospel have been made. The public ministry of of Jesus is about to begin and is about to begin. So Matthew places Jesus in Galilee, the beginning of this travel narrative. Now, these things did happen. They are true. They are historical. But Matthew's skipping over some things because it suits this theological point that he's after. So let's close that parenthesis. When Matthew quotes Isaiah, which he does, we are again thrust into the theological significance of Christ and the points that Matthew's trying to make. So look at these verses, verses 14 through 16. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, first century Galilee occupied the ancient territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, two of the twelve tribes of Israel. And these two northern tribes haven't existed in a long, long time, many centuries Now, the locations of Jesus' hometown and his new town are significant because Nazareth is within the historical territory of Zebulun. Capernaum is within the historical territory of Naphtali. And so, Matthew is again showing us that Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of prophecy. He is the one that all Scripture has been pointing towards. Now, Galilee, it was, like I've said, it's at the crossroad of the nations, the crossroad of continents. Jerusalem, though, to the Jew, that was the center of the world, not Galilee. Jerusalem. And so the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would do the majority of his work in Jerusalem. Matthew's uh, Matthew's quote is painting quite a different picture, isn't it? Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2 are are saying that the kingdom of the Messiah will dawn not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, but in Galilee, Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. And it was indeed Galilee of the Gentiles. At its strategic location, countless people from other nations have settled there. Galilee adopted a very strong Hellenistic or Greco-Roman culture. And it was a a region that was a mix in paganism and Judaism, a wash in both. And so the more conservative Jews in Jerusalem, 
They look down their nose at these Galilean brothers of theirs who were corrupted or tainted or colored by the paganism that so saturated their culture. And I, as I stated a few weeks ago, the dis- discrimination was severe between Judean Jews and Galilean Jews. And so when those pious Jews of Jerusalem would stand on Mount Zion and look to the north, to the north, they would see a great darkness over that land, a spiritual oppression, and they would disregard it and look down upon anybody who came out of Galilee. But Isaiah prophesied that it is precisely in these dark Gentile mixed lands that the light of the Messiah would dawn. Even in the deepest darkness, Jesus is the light of the world. He is the radiance of God. He is bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship God the Father, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Christ is making one new man. And Galilee would be the beachhead. Indeed, the invasion of earth had begun and the kingdom of heaven was at hand which is what Jesus came announcing. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You should know that those are the exact same words that John the Baptist was proclaiming. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The difference was, John was preparing and Jesus was delivering. That call to repentance, the first word of the proclamation, repent, that call assumes that every listener, everybody who hears the proclamation is unfit for the kingdom of God, not ready for heaven, unable to be in God's presence. Jesus presupposes that everyone who hears his message is barred from heaven's joys, And so he has come to break apart those bars and open wide the doors of heaven. Indeed, he flings wide the doors of heaven and he says, come. And everyone who desires to come, they must first repent and turn from their sinful ways and abandon those selfish, proud, arrogant life choices that they have been making come to Jesus. And when they do, when anyone repents and turns to Jesus, then the kingdom of heaven has moved from being near to arriving in a human heart. It is an astounding reality. We may gloss over these things, but how glorious that the kingdom of heaven arrives in human hearts first. You know, we're, we're prone to think of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God in terms of, of places or products, right? Like the kingdom of heaven has borders and lands and a, and a civic government and works. And Christian use, Christians use the phrase kingdom works, like let's go do kingdom works in a very similar manner as you might say c- civic works. Like the government does these civ- civic works for the good of everybody and we do our kingdom works for the good of everybody, You know, it's not entirely untrue, but the Jewish conception of the kingdom of God is different. It's it's more related to the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ, the influence of the king. 
Because those who have found a home in heaven's kingdom are those who have submitted themselves to Christ the King, right? have given Him loyalty, repented of their old way of living, and have come to Him. I say that because everything that comes under Christ's rule is part of the kingdom of heaven. Even if things come under Christ's rule through the work, effort of his disciples. So Christ came to deliver the kingdom of God. And his disciples go on delivering the kingdom of God. That's why right after proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' first activity is to seek out disciples. See this in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew refers to it as the Sea of Galilee, as do the other gospel writers, but really it's a large lake. And this large lake was teeming with freshwater fish, and it supplied the, re- the, the region with an abundance of fish and contributed to the wealth of that area. And so it's no surprise that Jesus comes across fishermen. Matthew almost makes it sound like Jesus was just out for a Sunday stroll or Saturday, walking along the sandy beach of Galilee, and he just stumbles across these men. But I don't really think that's what happened. I think Jesus was out there on a mission with a purpose. Jesus himself was fishing for men, four men in particular, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. When he comes to the first pair, he utters words and This is no overstatement. He utters words that change the course of history. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There are sermons and sermons in those ten words. But I'm going to stick to two points, which is really hard. First, in those words... Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There is salvation and judgment. You know I love the duality of salvation and judgment propagated again and again in Scripture. So let's consider what in the world it means to fish for men. First think of this. When a fish is caught by a fisherman, what fish has ever enjoyed that process? it would be fairly miserable. I ha- it's not my manuscript. I have had, I've walked behind my brother who was casting, and he wasn't paying attention, and he cast, and that hook caught my eyebrow, and it's unpleasant. It would have been worse in my mouth, I suppose. So getting caught could sound a little bit more like receiving terrible judgment. It was a bad thing to get caught on a hook. And yet, 
Jesus, Jesus' call to Peter and Andrew, it seems to cast it in a positive light. Like, getting caught is synonymous with salvation. Well, even though Jesus' summons to Peter and Andrew reflect the shoreside scenery, he's intentionally echoing an Old Testament image. And it's in a number of different places, but I'm going to give you one example from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with their carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. First time I read that passage, I was confused. There's a twofold meaning. In fishers of men. I wonder if you see that there. In, in this passage, in this passage in Jeremiah, God will send out fishers of men to gather those that have been scattered, to bring them to the promised land, to the place of salvation. And at the same time, when they're caught up, the wicked will be brought to judgment. So when Jesus says, I will make you fishers of men, it carries this same weight. As Jesus' as Jesus's follow, followers fish for men, as we fish for men, the purpose is to bring people in front of the gospel, to confront people with the reality of the gospel. Because we proclaim the gospel to all people, and at that moment, when the gospel is heard, it brings people to a moment of decision. And it sifts them. And they choose between heaven or hell. They choose between following Jesus or following their own passions and pleasures. Jesus tells another parable, or he tells a parable that highlights this reality. Flip in your Bible over to Matthew chapter 13. Just a couple pages, though it will probably take us a year to get there. We're looking at verses 47 to 50. Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50, it's called the parable of the net. Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' disciples do not have the right nor the authority to judge, to save. That is the work of God. But we have the power to cast the net of the gospel, to throw it out into all the earth. It's what we're being called to do, to proclaim the gospel. And everyone who hears, 
as we have once heard, they have the responsibility to make a decision. To choose to follow Jesus or not. To believe or go on in unbelief. So brothers and sisters in Christ, in this room, you cannot escape the reality of the twofold identity that you have in Jesus Christ. If you are a new creation in Christ, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a fisher of men. These both are yours. The concept of a Christian who does not proclaim the gospel is entirely foreign to Scripture. So everyone who calls Jesus king must unashamedly, boldly, joyfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be ambassadors, faithfully fishing for men, casting the net of the gospel. With every opportunity that we have been given, you live and breathe in large part to speak the gospel. Now let's do another parenthesis, because I just need to take a moment to plug the ambassador training here at Emmanuel. Now, there's one happening already. It's nearly in its sixth week. And over the past few weeks, as we've been learning together how to be faithful ambassadors, it's been incredible to hear stories pouring in of gospel proclamation going out. Our people are faithfully proclaiming the gospel in the community, and and people are responding in the community. It's amazing. It's been deeply encouraging. And I'm hearing these stories from folks in in our church who are in their 70s, who are teenagers, everywhere in between. There are 35 people taking this course right now, and God is so clearly moving in our midst. The ambassador training has become a highlight of my week. And if you've missed this round of ambassador training, fear not, because another one will be coming in the spring, and I strongly encourage you, participate, take it. It's so good. And I, and I don't mean that because I'm, I'm teaching it. I gathered most of my materials from elsewhere. Now, addition, in addition to that, there's a, a four-field intensive coming up on January 19th and 20th. Our missionary, Garrett Simerson, is going to be leading in the, us in this. He's driving all the way up from North Carolina to lead us in this so that we will further refine our fishing skills so that we may learn to be more faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So again, I encourage you, Go to this intensive. Strengthen, refine your skills of evangelism. Evangelism is not just for evangelists. It's for everyone who carries the evangelon, the gospel. Okay, I'll close that parentheses. That's my soapbox. I said I want to make two points regarding Jesus' words. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The first was that people hear the gospel of the kingdom and judgment and salvation is wrought. The second point is that Jesus' call is not a question or an invitation. It's a command. When Jesus calls, he summons. When he summons, when he commands, there's one response, only one response, obedience. Only obedience can follow Jesus' command. And here we are confronted with one of the great doctrines of grace, 
the doctrine of effectual calling. It's, we're seeing it evidenced right here in this passage. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase what this doctrine is from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. God has predestined to effectually call his elect out of their state of sin and death and unto grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. And God does this so that the elect respond freely and willingly. And it is a great mystery. See the two types of calling. There are the fishers of men. Casting the net, calling people to respond to the gospel as we have been commanded to do. And when people hear it, they can choose to accept or deny. It's because when we call a person with the gospel, it merely lands on ears. But when the Son of God calls a person, It is all together different because his call is powerful and effective. And so when he calls to a person through the gospel, the gospel which we proclaim, then he speaks into the heart of his elect. And that person, their human heart, suddenly comes to life hearing the voice of its creator, springing, beating for affection for Christ when he calls a person. And they are awakened to faith indwelt by the Holy Spirit, alive forevermore, and no one can snatch them from the hand of God. Now, I grant that that's difficult to understand, and already I imagine there are some controversies wheeling in your mind. That's okay. We are not a people who shy away from things simply because they're difficult, though. If it's in the Word, we want to go deeper We want to engage. We want to understand. God gave us minds to understand. Let us not let our minds go to waste. And of course, we see right here in this passage the effectual calling of Jesus Christ evidenced as these two men's immediately obey the command of Christ. For when Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and then James and John, they respond without hesitation, to his effectual call, and their lives will never be the same. From this point forward, their lives will never be the same. They're going to traverse the Roman world, even going beyond it. They're going to proclaim the gospel under great difficulty, facing many persecutions, and three of these men will die, will be martyred for the sake of the gospel. Something they never would have imagined when they went out that morning to catch fish. How powerful the call of Christ. And no one would ever have imagined that the Messiah would have chosen such men to establish his kingdom with. These lowly fishermen from Galilee. These hillbillies. The idea scandalized the religious elite. And yet it's these lowly fishermen that are exactly who Jesus wanted to begin with to begin this glorious work with, and I think that we can be very glad that God chooses the lowly and the broken and the rejected and the invisible to advance his kingdom with. And he makes the lowly and the broken and the invisible into a royal priesthood. That's stunning. From this point forward in 
the book of Matthew, we're no longer going to read stories where Jesus is alone. Everything he does and will do is in the context of community, his, the community of his disciples. And, and he's inextricably linking himself to his chosen disciples so that Christ's work is their work or will become their work in this case. And yet, there will be a moment where Jesus goes alone when he leaves Gethsemane. He might be surrounded by a mob, but he is entirely alone and he goes to a place where no man dare go. He goes to drink the dreadful cup of God's wrath that awaits sinners. And there, at the end, as his body begins to fail, he prays for forgiveness for his people. And you realize that he's hanging there in love because of his community, because of his disciples. Because if, if you repent and you believe in him, then, then you know that he drank that cup for you. And all that wrath and condemnation for sin was being soaked up by him. And he drank, full drink, the agony and the shame and the wrath so we would not have to. Everything Jesus did, everything he does, now it is all for his people and for the glory of his Father. And he did it that we might all be joined together with him in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. But that's some three and a half years after our passage today. For now, Jesus travels throughout, throughout Galilee and he authenticates the message of the kingdom which he has been proclaiming. Verses 23 to the end. And, when, and, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. See how verse 23 says that Jesus was preaching, teaching in the synagogues? The synagogues were places exclusively for the Jews. It's where they would gather on the Sabbath to worship. It's where Jesus went every Sabbath to teach. He'd wander around Galilee teaching in those various Jewish synagogues. Now, Jesus did sometimes minister to Gentiles, but he predominantly came to reveal himself to the Jews first, which is what he will later say in chapter 15. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And even still, people came from everywhere to see Jesus. They came from the Jewish lands of Galilee, Judea, the city of Jerusalem, and more came from Gentile lands in the north, from Syria. They streamed down from the Gentile land, or streamed over from the Gentile lands in the south and east, from the Decapolis and beyond the Jordan. These crowds surrounding Jesus, swarming to him, they would have been predominantly Jewish, but without a doubt, there were Gentiles pressing in too. 
And why did they come? Because this man could heal like no one had ever seen. Diseases, pains, possessions, paralysis, epilepsy, whatever it was, you got it, he can heal you. And however many ailments there were in your body or in this vast sea of people, Jesus was not rationing. He healed it all. You come, he heals. And so it's no wonder that these crowds stream into him. Matthew casts these crowds in a gray light. Sometimes they support Jesus, sometimes they defy him. The crowds will shout, Hosanna, and a week later the crowds will shout, crucify him. But most of the time, the crowd's just gawking. They're just in this middle ground. And they're there because they're curious. They like this spectacle. They, they want to see if they could get something out of Jesus, maybe a healing. And so I want to point out that though these crowds follow Jesus, they are not followers of Jesus. There are many people today following Jesus that are not followers of Jesus. They come to church looking for entertainment, for something that suits their preferences, something that will amaze them, something that will scratch their itching ears, and it might look like they're following Jesus. But when they're not getting what they want and when the cost gets too high, they're gone. They're gone. And when Jesus leaves Galilee and he starts heading towards Jerusalem, there's only 12 men with him and a handful of women. And the crowds are gone. Jesus is, it's because Jesus' miracles were not meant to amaze the crowd and just simply make people feel better. No. His miracles were authenticating the arrival of the kingdom of God. That heaven was breaking upon the earth. And he was the one who was bringing an end, is bringing an end to this fallen world. That's what his miracles prove. That the curse is being undone. And so if all you can see is you don't have this pain in your back anymore, you're blind. The kingdom of God is near. As Isaiah prophesied, then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Jesus is the water in the desert. And he says, come to me. If anyone thirsts, let him come. And out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus is light for the blind. He is the word that the deaf can hear. And his miracles and his healings are proof that what he can do for the body, he can do so much more for the soul. If your body is lame, he will make your heart leap for joy. And if your tongue is mute, then he can cause your whole soul to overflow with rejoicing. Rejoicing. 
And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you are in here this morning, oh, I hope you hear. I hope you hear the gospel that has been proclaimed. And I call to you, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn to Jesus and enter his kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. Before I stood here this morning, I was praying for you. That Christ would speak to your heart. And that your heart would awaken and spring to life and beat with affection for Jesus. And I pray now that that happen. And if you are hearing my voice and you do have a heart that beats for Jesus, I prayed for you too. That you would be faithful fishers of men. That you would not neglect this calling that the king has placed over your life. We have heard his word. We have heard him speak. There is nothing more that we need. May we believe and respond today with hearts that are fully committed. May we be ready to lay everything aside to follow Jesus. And now to conclude, I want to return to that passage that Matthew quoted. Isaiah chapter 9. Turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah 9. Not only is this passage extremely appropriate for our Christmas season, but this passage is for hearts that doubt, for hearts that fear, that worry, for those that weep in the dark. I pray that these words kindle a flame in you and they set your world on fire. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Oh, what glory, Father. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that respond. You are our wonderful counselor, our prince of peace, our everlasting father, our mighty God, and we worship you. And worship you because to us you have given a son who drank that cup 
that was our doom so we would not have to. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we too will drink from a cup, a cup of communion. We'll take the bread.